All right, so heat. Heat tends to show us for what we are. Do you remember back in Mark 4 where Jesus told the parable of the sowers and, or of the sower? Um, so he sows the seed and there's multiple different kinds of soil. A hard path, you know, just never even goes into the ground because it's beaten down and the birds just take it and devour it. But then there's the seed that falls on the rocky ground where it didn't have much soil and immediately it springs up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. So when the sun came out and the heat got turned up, it withered away and proved to not be the real thing. So heat can show what we really are, what's really inside. It can expose us. It can be easy to, you know, follow Jesus if all is well. But turn the heat up, and there's the threat, the temptation to cave, to compromise, to shrink back. So heat can be a threat. But heat can also be a tool. Heat can actually expose, but for a helpful purpose, to actually bring the impurities to the surface so that they can be skimmed off, so that that precious metal can be purified. So it can be a threat to destroy faith. It can also be a tool to refine and strengthen faith. And in the text that we're going to look at, the heat is high. The heat is turned up. It's turned up for Jesus, and it's turned up for his disciples. And we're going to see what that heat exposes, both in them and then see it for ourselves here. All right? So, We've already considered, we're in Mark chapter 14, walking through the gospel of Mark. If you're a guest with us this morning, you know you're kind of jumping in the middle of this series, and we're just taking a section at a time, walking through the gospel of Mark, and we're here in chapter 14. Is this thing kind of, is it, there's some reverb, is that just me? Okay, it's all good? Okay, sorry, I don't know if I need to move it away from my mouth. Um, so we've seen over and over again that Mark does this thing where he he has these little sandwiches, okay, where he has one thing here, one thing here, and then something in the middle, like bread, bread, and meat in the middle. And usually the focus is on the meat in the middle. So last week we saw that Jesus talks about the fact that somebody's going to betray him. And then there's the Last Supper where he says, take, eat, this is my body, this is my blood. And then it's the beginning of our section here. He talks about how everybody's going to abandon him. So betrayal, abandonment, but then take, eat. This is my body. So he's, he's like hosting this meal. And what's on either end is infidelity. So what? Well, this table, like the grace of Jesus, why he's dying, he's not dying for the worthy people. He's dying for the unworthy. It is 
it's Romans 5.8 on display. God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. He died for the unfaithful, the cowardly, people like you and me. Okay? So this is encouraging. <laughs> like as much as this is a dark chapter, it's filled with betrayal. It's actually encouraging that knuckleheads like these guys, oblivious to the extreme suffering of Jesus, are still loved by Jesus and ultimately can be used by Jesus. Like, that's really encouraging. So just think, Jesus is headed into the most intense suffering any human being has ever experienced. And his disciples are filled with cockiness. Let's read it here together. Let's see what's going on here in Mark 14. He says, you'll all fall away. And Peter, as the spokesman, they might, but I'll never do it. And, And they all say the same thing. So they've got this cockiness. So I mean, we can just think, like, man, how oblivious these guys were. But you know what? That would actually be oblivious because we wouldn't have done any better. And I guess I, just thinking about this, like, just stop and realize here Jesus is headed into the most intense suffering that any human being has ever, will ever experience on the cross. His disciples just totally don't get it. They're, they're kind of sleepy, both physically and spiritually. And I guess what might be worth thinking about is, like, are you ever dull and sleepy to, like, the most important realities? Like, I, I just think how I can be so cold. People are dying and going to hell all around us. And do you ever just, like, want to go home and have a, you know, like you just want your comfort and you're just kind of oblivious and you don't even want to worry about all that stuff. And maybe at some points you kind of realize how selfish you are and how small you, and oh, I'm just so pathetic. Like how could Jesus use somebody like me? Well, look, here are these knuckleheads over and over and over again in the gospels. He says, hey, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, um, we'd like to be first Hey, I'm going to suffer and die. Hey, uh, like when you come into your glory, could, could we, can I have your right hand and could my, my brother here have the left hand? Like, did you hear what I just said? I'm about to go suffer and die. And then he does it again here. Hey, I'm going to suffer and die. You all are going to fall away. No, we're not. And then they're sleeping in, in the garden when Jesus is sweating drops of blood. So here's the point. Isn't that encouraging that God took those knuckleheads and turned the world upside down with them? So there's hope for me. (laughs) Maybe you put yourself in the same category. There's hope for us, knuckleheads, that God can use us. Because again, the whole point of this is not, you know, he's looking for the impressive people. No, this isn't about our performance. It's about his performance. It's not about what we can do. It's about his grace and what his grace can do in us and through us. So this is all actually intending to be encouraging if you fit it into the big story. So Jesus' gracious self-sacrifice is in this stark contrast to the infidelity, the betrayal, the cowardice all around his beautiful 
sacrifice. Jesus doesn't become a ransom for the worthy, but for the unworthy. All right, so let's dive in and see what's going on in this passage. We're going to look at it under four points. The first one is hubris and humility. Hubris just means, you know, arrogance, pride, okay? So 27 to 31, look at those verses again. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13. We won't take the time to go back there. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Already there's a note of hope right there. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And not just Peter, but they all said this. Okay, so Jesus is looking the gaping jaws of death and hell in the face. And the disciples are boasting about their unshakable devotion and dependability. And again, this isn't the first time that they are self-focused when Jesus is talking about how he's going to lay down his life. Happens in chapter 8, happens in chapter 9, it happens in chapter 10, and now again here in chapter 14. So these disciples certainly and repeatedly think too highly of themselves, Peter chief among them. And in Peter's arrogance, his bravado, he's willing to say, you know, they might all fall away, but I won't. I mean, he thinks he's the exception, but he's not. None of us are the exception. Look at what happens down in verse 37. He came and found them sleeping. They're not watching. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there's failure. Verse 40, and he came again, found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say. He came a third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. So three times... He returns to find them sleeping, failing at what he has called them to do, which foreshadows threefold denial of Peter to come. And then the final proof of their faithlessness, look down at verse 50. They all left him and fled after Judas came with the, the mob to arrest Jesus. And then there's this interesting thing about this dude that runs away naked. Um, we don't know who that is. It might actually be John, Mark, the writer of this gospel, like a humble signature, you know? It's possible that this was him, and he heard that this might happen, and maybe he just jumped out of bed and came to be there, and then the mob comes, and he's like, I got to get out of here, and they grab. It's almost like a photographic negative of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. In the face of the heat of temptation, Joseph left the garment in order to flee temptation and be faithful to God. Here, he does the opposite in the face of the heat, giving way to the temptation to abandon Jesus. It's also possible that there's an allusion here to Amos 2. 
It's kind of an obscure passage, but that passage in Amos 2 speaks of the judgment of God that's coming. And on that day, Amos 2.14, flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. In other words, the whole point of that is Amos describes a day of judgment that's coming that's so terrible that the most valiant, like you just think of a Navy SEAL, running away scared and naked. Most valiant, valiant and stout of heart runs away unable to withstand. So the bottom line here is, in this chapter filled with betrayal and abandonment, all have turned away from Jesus. It's like a living illustration of Romans 3. There's no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. When the heat was turned up, they all abandoned Jesus. And the fact that none of the disciples are named, did you notice that? Neither was the woman named in the beginning of chapter 14. And the purpose of that is don't focus on the identity Focus on what they did. She, in a virtuous way, they, in not a virtuous way. Because what that does is it invites us as the readers to look in. What about me? I'm not focused on just one person in history. I'm seeing this behavior and I'm saying, what would I do in that situation? Will I deny and abandon when the heat gets turned up? So that question should hang over this passage and over us as we walk through it. Now, one thing we need to distinguish is there's a difference here that's made between the abandonment of the disciples and the betrayal of Judas. His betrayal is actually in another category. So for Judas, Jesus said in verse 21, we looked at it last week, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. But of the rest of the disciples, even though their abandonment and denial is infidelity, it's terrible, there's already this note of hope in verse 28. After I'm raised up, he's saying this to all the disciples except for Judas. After I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He's already hinting at the restoration to come. So after saying you will all fall away, Jesus says, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. The resurrection means hope of reunion and hope of restoration. I mean, they don't get that at this point, but soon they will, and it will be a beautiful thing. But of Judas, he calls him his betrayer. So Judas comes with his crowd armed with swords and clubs. Look at verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Okay, so it's dark. You know, they don't have social media. Not everybody's going to know what Jesus looks like, especially in the dark. So you have to have this insider who will betray him, give him away so that they arrest the right person. And in a context where it's not going to create like a riot among the people. And so, you know, you can think of like Middle Eastern context, Italian context. You come up and, you know, oh, rabbi, and you kiss the cheeks. seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him. 
This is like terrible irony, greeting Jesus, Jesus this way. So rabbi means my great one or my master. And then a kiss was typically an expression of respect and homage and love. So you see how this is a mockery? The act itself is mockery, and it leads to, it subjects Jesus to the most degrading mockery. And then why come with this armed mob? Did he expect a fight? Look at verse 47. But, those of, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We find in John's gospel that that was Peter, and the servant's name was Malchus. And Peter wasn't just trying to like slice off his ear. He was trying to cut off his head. And the guy goes like this, and he just cuts his ear off. And Jesus heals the ear right on the spot before he's going to go to the cross. But the point is, like, why come with an armed mob? Did Judas expect a fight? Did the chief priests and the elders and scribes expect a fight? The swords and clubs betray the fact that Judas and the chief priests, scribes, and elders do not understand Jesus. His kingdom is not of this world. If it was, his servants would be fighting. And you know what, Judas? You and your band would not stand a chance. But Peter doesn't understand that when I mean, Peter doesn't understand it either because he's swinging his sword wildly. So Tim Keller says this. He's got a book on the Gospel of Mark called King's Cross. And he says this, to Peter and to all of us, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. My revolution comes without the sword. It is the first true revelation. So it looks like he is a colossal failure and weak and conquered. But Jesus says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He is being treated as a common criminal. Like Isaiah 53, 12 foretells, he was numbered with the transgressors. So like what shame, what degradation and dishonor for the most honored and exalted one to be arrested and carried away like a common criminal. This is like Philippians 2 in living color. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or Hebrews 12, 2, again, in living color. Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. He is our captain. He's blazing the trail. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame. He despised the shame. This is shameful. Remember, he gets mocked by the soldiers. He gets spit upon. He gets slapped. He actually lived all of his life under the cloud of being an illegitimate child. And he despised all that shame. What does that mean? We talked about it actually in prayer meeting on Wednesday night because Hebrews 12, 2 is our fighter verse. All the degradation leading to the cross, all the humiliation of the cross, 
He despised it. Rather than avoiding that shame and allowing it to keep him from his mission, he said, shame, I despise you. I think little of you. I think more of my father and of my beloved bride. Shame, you are ugly. You are worthless. I refuse to be controlled by you. I despise you because I will not despise my father. Shame, you made Peter deny me, but you're not going to derail me. I despise you. So Jesus gave shame no sway in his life. He willingly laid down his life through all the humiliation and shame in order to give life to us, to his people. And then where are we, by the way? Where is Jesus in this passage? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Garden, garden. William Lane writes this, just as rebellion in a garden brought death's reign over mankind, submission in another garden reversed that pattern of rebellion and sets in motion a sequence of events which defeated death itself. Okay? So his power comes through the weakness of the cross. So Jesus is now betrayed, and the plans are in motion that will soon result in his death. And all of a sudden, for the first time, Jesus recoils. Point number three. Why? Why? I mean, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels, really, Jesus predicts his death. He faces death threats. People want to throw him off a cliff, and he just kind of like walks through the crowd, and like he's just never, he's just totally unflappable, totally steady. But here we look at verses 33 to 36, and he is greatly distressed and troubled and very sorrowful, even to death. Those words translated into English are kind of weak, like they're really strong words. So why is he recoiling now in the face of death? I mean, other human beings have seemingly faced death more peacefully, more confident than him. I mean, Socrates greeted death as a friend and a liberator. He was, remember, he was condemned to drink the hemlock. And apparently, you know, I wasn't there. I haven't read much of Socrates' life, but he was ringing off one-liners with irony and coolness, you know, right before he drank it. Polycarp was a believer, Christian, Bishop of Smyrna, early church father. He was summoned and told he would be burned at the stake unless he recounted his faith. And apparently, Polycarp's reply was, the fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. And he said to those that were going to kill him, you do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Or maybe you've heard of Ridley and Latimer, okay, bishops Hugh Ridley, Nicholas Latimer. They were burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford in 1555. And when the fire was lit around their feet, Latimer famously said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and oftentimes we've seen that happen. So why is Jesus then so distressed and troubled? Well, he's not just facing physical suffering and death. In fact, what Jesus is facing 
makes being burned at the stake look like a flea blight in comparison. He's already said in Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He will die as a substitute in our place. I can't atone for my sins. You can't atone for your sins. So he who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness, a ransom to set us free from slavery to sin and its consequences. He's going to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of everyone who will ever trust in him as Savior and Lord. That's the objective reality. But the subjective reality that he's facing is what we get a glimpse into here. He's actually looking into that cup, you know, the cup of God's just righteous wrath against sin. And it makes him stagger that he's got to drink that. Listen, it's one thing to have to face the judge of the earth to answer for your own sins. I mean, that's like terrifying enough. And if you can't make atonement, you and I will face the perfectly just and righteous judgment of God in hell. We all deserve hell. The wages of sin is death, right? But Jesus is not answering for his sins. He doesn't have any. He's answering for the sins of every person who will ever trust him as Savior. He's facing the reckoning and the judgment that you and I and Everyone who will ever trust him deserve all of it. I mean, what was it like to stare into the cup of God's wrath? Not only to face judgment and punishment, but to face forsakenness by God, especially because all he has ever known for eternity is perfect fellowship and intimacy and love. That's all he's ever known. So it's not physical death that caused him to stagger and ask if the cup be removed from him. Father, is there any other way? He's facing utter alienation before God, utter forsakenness from his dear, beloved father, with whom he's had perfect fellowship and intimacy forever. And he's going to say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like for all eternity, the apple of the father's eye, the perfectly beloved son of God with whom the father is well pleased is now going to become the object of God's wrath against sin. Like we got to keep just wrestling (coughs) to try to get our minds and our hearts around that. William Lane writes this. He says, Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. Or again, Tim Keller writes, all his life because of Jesus' eternal, loving communion with the Father and the Spirit, wherever he turned to the Father, the Spirit flooded him with love. 
what happened visibly and audibly at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, remember, this is my beloved son with him, I am well pleased, happened invisibly, inaudibly, every time he prayed. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father and all he can see before him is wrath, the abyss, the chasm, the nothingness of the cup. God is the source of all love, all life, all light, all coherence. Therefore, exclusion from God is exclusion from the source of all light, all love, all coherence. Jesus began to experience the spiritual, cosmic, infinite disintegration that would happen when he became separated from his Father on the cross. Jesus began to experience merely a foretaste of that, and he staggered. And it was into that hellish, horrific furnace of suffering. What was exposed when the heat got turned up? When he rose from prayer, he walked right into it for you and me. the decisive moment in the garden. So point number four, living the Lord's Prayer. So our Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane, you know, verses 35 and 36, he, he goes a little farther, he falls down to the ground. You know, other accounts, he's, he's sweating like drops of blood. He's in such distress and he prays that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he says, Abba, Father, just using the common address like daddy all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what you will you know like Abraham with Isaac and the daggers hanging in the air but then the Lord provided another way like if it's possible he wants to be spared this cup he's fully human but he ultimately wants more than that, he wants for the will of God to be done and for us to be spared. So in this garden, there will be responses of fight. Peter trying to hack somebody's head off and only getting an ear. And flight, all the disciples, you know, running for their lives. In this garden, all the men are failing the test. That sounds familiar. Our first parents failed a test in a garden. All the disciples fail in a test in this garden. And there's one man standing while he's kneeling. But then he's standing. And he's going to be crushed so that we might be able to stand. Jesus is subordinating his immediate and loudest desire to his deepest desires to God's will. So living the Lord's Prayer. I mean that in two senses. How many times will your circumstances, my circumstances, and our desires conflict? Like, is that a rare occurrence in life here under the sun? No, this is very common. So when this happens... We need to follow in our captain's footsteps. He blazed the trail, right? To fall to the ground in prayerful desperation. Yes, that is true. We'll talk about that in a minute. But if we only have an example here in Jesus, then that's not good news. It's just good advice. 
But the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. It's not about us taking Jesus' advice and living better, doing better. Like, if that's Christianity, guess what? You don't even need a cross. He could have just been, like, transported to heaven, and now I just need to follow his example, at least better. If that's Christianity, you don't even need a cross. You just need to learn some things and try harder. But the gospel is not advice. It's not about your performance. It's not about us taking Jesus' advice in the form of his example and just going and doing likewise. It's about his performance. It's about him drinking the cup of God's judgment and wrath for me and for you and being utterly forsaken to give you and me the cup of salvation, the cup of the new covenant in his blood so that we will never be forsaken. So Jesus must be our substitute before he can be our example. Are you tracking with me? Otherwise, all we have is good advice, not a gospel, just moralism. So his example is nothing but impossible for us unless he is also our substitute. The lamb must be slain to save us before we can follow in his footsteps. And once we do have Jesus as Savior and substitute, then we can follow him as our example. So let's just pull this together and consider some application by noticing, like, okay, so what? Well, did you notice that, like, the Lord's Prayer is almost like playing in the background of Mark 14? Do you hear it? Do you see some of the parallels? between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord's Prayer, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father. And then he says, not my will, but yours be done. Lord's Prayer starts out, our Father in heaven, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then what was the counsel, the you know, command he gave to the disciples. He said, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And what's in the Lord's prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Do you see those three parallels? Well, let's look at them each in turn as we draw this to a close. So Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. And he's on his way to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I can call God our Father. You can't just run into the Lord's Prayer and just without a cross call him your Father, right? We're all cosmic rebels. Ephesians 2 says we're like children of wrath. We're shaking our fists in God's face. We need adopted into his family first, and then we can say, our Father in heaven, right? So Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. He cried out, Abba, Father, and went through the fire so that we could pray, our Father in heaven. We need adopted before we can say, Abba. So listen to these words by C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. 
He, he shares this insight. If you're interested enough to read thus far in my book, you know, he's writing this book kind of as an apologetic of the Christian faith, and he's speaking to the reader. He says, if you're interested enough to read this, to have read this far, you're probably interested enough to make a shot at saying your prayers. And whatever else you say, you will probably say the Lord's Prayer. Its very first words are, Our Father. Do you now see what those words mean? They mean, quite frankly, that you are putting yourself in the place of a son of God. To put it bluntly, you are dressing up as Christ. If you, if you like, you are pretending. Because, of course, the moment you realize what the words mean, you realize that you are not a son of God. You're not being like the son of God, whose will and interests are at one with those of the Father. You are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit, all doomed to death. So that in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek. He's British, you know, being cheeky. Is okay, everybody with me. But the odd thing is, is that he has ordered us to do it. Why? What is the good of pretending to be what you're not? Well, even on the human level, you know, there are two kinds of pretending. There's a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing, as when a man pretends he's going to help you instead of really helping you. But there is also a good kind where the pretense leads up to the real thing. Now, immediately, I need to qualify this. He's not talking about faking it till you make it, okay? He's not talking about that. Sorry to quote somebody else here, but there's a guy named Brad Hambrick who's kind of a biblical counselor, and he's very wise, and he says, when we cry to God for redemption, we are strangely asking him to make us into something we have never known, but feel compelled that we should be. The imagination to pray this kind of audaciously creative prayer is itself a mark of being made in the image of the creator God. But not only is imagination necessary for faith, this visionary prayer is necessary for change. We must see ourselves as, God, as a child of God before we will live like we belong to him. The addict must believe there is a life without substance before he will pursue it. It is because we often reduce faith to intellectual assent to propositional doctrines that we often access so little of its power to change our lives. This kind of teaching can often be used to neglect doctrine and espouse prosperity teaching, but it doesn't need to be that way. The question is, here's the nut of this thing, do we see our doctrine? Is our adoption by God so real that we can relate to him as father? Is our slavery to sin and emancipation by Christ so tangible that it shapes our identity? Can we use our imagination to bring to life what we say is true? If not, then our ability to mature will be hampered like children who never play in the way that Lewis describes. Let us play with our doctrine, not by trivializing it, but by letting our imaginations explore all its implications and taking the playful liberties of children to live as it were true until it becomes an increasingly accurate description of our life. Did you follow all that? Let me try to bring it home this way. Romans 8.32 says, if God did not spare his only son, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So if you're in Christ, you are a son or daughter of God, and you can call God Father. But how often do we live like orphans? 
and we doubt God's goodness. If he didn't spare his only son, like, I am a child of God. It's not pretend, right? But I'm not living like a child of God. So when I come before the Father and I say, our Father in heaven, I could feel like an imposter. Or I could say, if he was willing to look hell in the face and take that from me on the cross willingly, maybe there's some resources for me to change in this area. Maybe there is a future where I am free from slavery to this sin. Maybe there is a future where there is power over this temptation. Are you tracking with me? If he didn't spare his only son, he's going to give me whatever I need to follow him, to trust him. What else is playing in the background from the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours. Listen, this is not faking it. Again, this is not stuffing it down in an unhealthy way. This is denying himself in faith. God is good. God can be trusted. His will is better than mine. So Jesus doesn't pretend that he doesn't want to be spared. He's honest but he doesn't yield to the desire to be spared. He yields to his father's will, to his father's desire, his will to the father's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, oh Lord, help us to go and do likewise. Like seeing how he has loved us, provided for us, cared for us, given his life for us. even if the heat is turned up. Rather than shrinking back from him, we run to him with our real desires and we yield those up and say, not my will but yours be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then one more thing resonates with the Lord's Prayer in Mark 14. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then in Mark 14, it's watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. So listen, the pressure to cave is going to come. The heat is going to be turned up. Maybe right now the heat is like really high for you. The sifting of loyalties and allegiances is inevitable. How will you survive that heat, that temptation, that threat? Here the disciples, the heat is turned up, they cave. We see Jesus walk right into the hellish furnace for cowards and infidels like us. So even if you have failed, you can run to Jesus this morning and find grace and forgiveness and restoration but there's also grace to strengthen us and steal us in the face of any temptation or trial or suffering so that we can follow in the footsteps as of our Savior.
all the way home. So Abba, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us not into temptation. We can be faithful because he was faithful to us. We can die to our selfish desires because he yielded his desire and gave himself up for us. So let's close in prayer and then we're going to sing a song. Lord, we need you and we thank you that you didn't just meet our need by giving us instruction and example. You paid the price for every every bit of unfaithfulness and cowardice and shame. And there are so many resources in Christ to face every temptation and every time when the heat gets turned up. So Lord, please help us to see the great, great love of Jesus and then help us to follow in his footsteps. Not my will, but yours be done. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us, Lord, from evil. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.